So what am I looking at here? This is the Alpha Bay? Yeah, so this is one of the biggest markets that's currently in operation. You can see here all the different product categories. The little gray numbers there are the numbers of listings in any given product category. You can see here the drugs category is by far the biggest. This is Dr. James Martin, convener of the criminology program at Macquarie University. And in front of us is a website called Alpha Bay. There's counterfeit items, weapons as well, and fraudulent materials there, so there'll be stolen credit card information, malware, that kind of thing. Let's have a look at the drug section. Okay, sure. So yeah, you can see there's well, 233,000 different categories, so cannabis will be the biggest. That would be followed by ecstasy and stimulant. If you haven't already guessed, Alphabay isn't your standard online shopping experience. It's called a crypto market, an underground internet also known as the Darknet. It's completely anonymous, tucked away on the encrypted Tor network. Perfect if you're in the market for something illegal. You can limit your searches, so if we go into the cannabis section here. So if you were located in Australia, say, you might want to avoid the possibility of getting the drugs sent in from overseas, so you can limit your search just to Australian dealers. Can you see any with reviews there? Yeah, so let's have a look. Wow, there's a lot of reviews. Mm -hmm. These were two reviews. Yesterday. Yeah, it's almost several a day. I can see yes, fast shipping, great quality and stealth. Mm. A very trustworthy seller. Mr. Fossey is the man. How would people like this get caught? If they're very careful, then it's difficult. Welcome to Think Digital Futures. My name is Shane Anderson, and this episode I'll be exploring how new developments in science and technology are shaping the future of drug crime. Innovation is a blessing and a curse in the fight against global drug trafficking. New chemical compounds are entering the scene at an alarming rate, and it's a constant race for researchers to find out what these substances are. But at the same time, technology is transforming the way drugs are bought and sold. At the supply level, technology is presenting many recreational drug users alternative ways to acquire drugs. All this is happening in a context of a global grassroots movement towards legalisation. In the United States, where the war on drugs was invented by President Nixon in the 70s, the legalisation of cannabis has swept across seven states. I'm going to take a close look at both sides of the coin and see whether new developments in science and tech could end the war on drugs. And if it does, which side will win? But first, let's get some terminology straight. When we talk about recreational drugs, we're covering a huge amount of things, from marijuana to cocaine and heroin. But right now, I'm going to focus on synthetic drugs. So what are they? You actually would already know a lot of synthetic drugs because they're basically just any compound that is made in a lab rather than taken naturally. That was Morgan Philp, a PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. A forensic scientist, Morgan is developing what she calls presumptive tests designed to detect synthetic substances. Unlike a confirmatory test, which is often a more comprehensive test conducted in a lab, a presumptive test can be used quickly in the field by government agencies like the Australian Federal Police. So we already have presumptive testing for the synthetic drugs that you can probably think of, like MDMA, methamphetamine. We can identify those using quick colour tests, very rapid tests that you can do on the scene, but we can't do those same tests for these new compounds that are out. The challenge for forensic scientists like Morgan is that while your typical street drugs tend to stay roughly the same, 
Synthetic substances are constantly changing. The United Nations documented 644 new types of psychoactive substances that appeared between 2008 and 2015. Some of these we know about. Names like Spice, Chronic and Meow Meow have all made headlines for their dangerous side effects. Others we don't know nearly enough about. Currently I'm finished working on another test for synthetic cathinones, which you've probably heard of. They're called bath salt. These are synthetic drugs, but they're actually based on a structure that came from a plant. In the Arabian Peninsula and East Africa, they chew a plant called cart. They chew this plant, and it's been done for decades, just to get the stimulant properties out of this plant. And it has a compound in there called cathinone that is a stimulant. And so they chew the plant to get the stimulant effects. And what people started to notice is that they could create a drug very similar to cathinone in a lab. Untested synthetic substances are in some ways more risky than plant-based drugs, as they can be made in makeshift labs with little thought given to the side effects for those who take them. YouTube has a pretty comprehensive collection of videos that show people's harrowing reactions to misusing bath salts. Morgan says it can be dangerous to experiment with them when you don't know what effect the chemical compound will have. People are continuing to use them because they are cheap, they're available, and they, we do not know the effects of them. So with new synthetic opioids, they are really potent. So they're a thousand times stronger than heroin. And often police officers will breathe in the powder and then they can have the potential to overdose themselves. Morgan's research is just one example of how forensic science is stepping up to help us better understand the changing landscape of illegal drug use and development. And this, in turn, is changing the way forensic science is done. Traditionally, and it's still the case in most countries, the main focus of forensic science is to present evidence in court and solve cases, right? So that's the main focus, and that's what usually people think of forensic science and the forensic scientists. That was Marie Morilato, postdoctoral chancellor's fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. Like Morgan, Marie works alongside the Australian Federal Police to better understand drug crime in Australia. She says the AFP are increasingly turning to forensic scientists. On a case-by-case -case basis, we're not able to actually have an impact on the criminal activity. So now they are trying to find different ways to try to prevent the criminal and disrupt the criminal activity, and forensic intelligence is one of them. So with the AFP, their new facility in Canberra, they really changed their approach to forensic science. This new strategy is called intelligence-led policing, and it's all about integrating science into crime prevention and detection. Even though the idea has been around for a while, it's only recently become a more serious part of police practice. While traditionally forensic scientists focus on crime after the fact, agencies are now turning to them to help prevent it. Marie's particular focus is on how big data can be applied to drug crime. The hypothesis was that specimen of drugs had a similar chemical profile if they were coming from the same seizure and they had different chemical profile if they were coming from different seizures. So we tried to have a linked population and an unlinked population to see if we could separate the two populations. And once we have that, when we have a new specimen, then we can find out if it, it is similar to another seizure or not. Marie uses statistics to map out where a particular batch of illicit substances is moving. We usually use analyst notebook, so it's one type of software that is able to have an understanding of visually what is happening. So if there's links and then you can see over time, you can see geographically as well. Analyzing big data is all about finding patterns in statistics. For Marie, what's most interesting about this approach is that interpreting the results is as much an art as it is a science. Even if you extract the relevant information, then what does that mean? 
and that's the interpretation part because the computer will give you the trends but then what are, what do they mean in the context of what you're trying to find out but even with the benefit of big data this method has its issues in Australia, it's a bit difficult because the data was from the federal police. So that means that it's everything that is Im- imported into the country. So um, we have the information of where it comes from, but it doesn't mean that it's actually coming from there because it's just the plane that it boarded. The importation problem makes it more difficult for this method to track things like heroin and cocaine. Heroin and cocaine are plant-derived, so they're imported into the country. But synthetic drugs can be made onshore, making this method particularly good at tracking methamphetamine and MDMA, or ecstasy. Innovations in things like big data and presumptive testing are giving police a distinct advantage in understanding drug crime. But is this enough to stamp it out? Morgan says that even when drug law and testing is one step ahead, it doesn't take long to fall behind. It's a constant cat and mouse game. We're constantly chasing those rogue chemists that are able to make these illegal drugs. So is it a losing battle? After the break, we're going to head to the other side of the tracks and look at how technology is transforming the way drugs are bought and sold. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. Before the break, we had a look at how innovations in forensic science are keeping us at the cutting edge of the war on drugs. It's a cat and mouse game for the authorities to keep up with synthetic drugs that are constantly evolving as people chase new ways to get high. But recently, the whole playing field has shifted. Drug trafficking is being turned on its head by the internet. I'd first heard about the darknet through friends of friends, but sitting with Dr James Martin, it was the first time I'd actually seen it for myself. At first, I expected to see something similar to the Star Wars cantina. A seedy underground establishment. A hub of crime. A place where money could buy you anything. I'd heard dark rumours of hiring hitmen, of red rooms where real-life snuff films play out. But James reckons that we shouldn't believe the hype. There's never been any verified case of anyone ever actually using it to buy hitmen. You can find people who claim they're hitmen. And all you need to do is send them, you know, $10,000 in untraceable bitcoins uh, and they will you know, promise to kill someone for you. But yeah, we've never had any cases where we've actually, that's ever been demonstrated to be anything more than a scam. So it's the equivalent of sending the Nigerian prince yes, some money? exactly. According to James, despite how it's often reported, the darknet isn't an anarchic free-for-all. Rather, it reflects the way crime is organised in real life. Most of these sites have pretty clear rules on things that you can and can't sell. So there will be things like, well, restrictions on, well, this site trades in weapons, but a lot of sites don't. Nearly all of these sites, I've never seen a drug site, for example, or any site that sells drugs dealing anything like child exploitation material, which you can find on the darknet. But they're very separate kind of criminal worlds, as they are in the offline world as well. And this is why the darknet runs so smoothly. At the end of the day, it's basically just an eBay for crime. And the thing is, these sites actually run very well because there are a lot of rules. Um, they're not rules that are enforced by the government. They're not rules that are enforced by the state. 
but there's very low tolerance for people who are dishonest on these sites. You know, your reputation is very important. That's why the dealers take feedback. Any scams that people detect are usually discussed pretty quickly. The administrators will kick people off the site. It's amazing how well these sites run in the absence of any kind of government regulation. With so few darknet drug busts, a lot of users feel pretty confident in the system. Police don't typically have advanced capacities to conduct cyber investigations. And even the most powerful, well-resourced law enforcement agencies in the world struggle with this. You know, we know that Silk Road 1, the first kind of really big crypto market that was in operation, that was operating in full view of the FBI, the DEA, very, very you know, powerful law enforcement agencies with billion-dollar budgets for over two and a half years before they eventually managed to shut it down. So how do law enforcement keep up? Dealers use the regular post, as in the snail mail, and this is where the transaction is actually at its most vulnerable. I tried to find out a bit more about how the authorities regulate drugs being sent in the mail. First, I contacted Australia Post. They weren't keen to be interviewed, but they told me they're not legally responsible for what is sent to Australia. They're just the messengers. It's up to Border Force to monitor what's in the packages. So I asked Border Force. They also, somewhat understandably, weren't keen to feature in this podcast. But an official spokesman said, By working closely with our federal and state law enforcement partners, we're able to ensure that we're not only stopping these dangerous drugs from breaching our borders, but also tracking and arresting the people responsible for this evil trade. Then they gave a shout out to the hard work of forensic scientists like Morgan and Marie. The ABF uses a variety of technologies to detect sophisticated concealment technologies, including X-ray and a large range of sophisticated substance and trace detection technologies and detector dogs. But they also combine this with more traditional drug detection models. We also perform physical inspections and often deconstruct consignments if officers suspect that they may be harbouring illicit or prohibited goods. And they've had a lot of success with these approaches. In 2015, Border Force made more than 37,000 detections of illicit drugs, and they described nearly 17,000 of these as major busts. But this happens in the context of nearly 35 million air cargo consignments arriving in Australia each year. With such a high volume of posts teeming across our borders, Darknet buyers feel they can take their chances. Even so, it's difficult to determine just how many Australians use crypto markets to buy drugs. We don't know exactly the numbers of Australian customers. We know how many um, dealers, roughly, are located in Australia who are using the Darknet. So in the month that we were gathering data, these 150-odd dealers that we saw conducted around 1,500 cannabis transactions, uh, 1,260 prescription, ecstasy was the next biggest category, 958, and so on. These figures may seem big, but it's small fry compared to the quantity being sold on the streets. Marie says estimates suggest the darknet share of the market is surprisingly small. There is some report that say that it's 10%, so it's not a massive amount of, like in general, not the darknet in comparison to the, uh, the traditional drug trafficking, but there is a lot of uncertainty with that. So if it's so good, why aren't more people using it? Well, Marie says the darknet operates alongside street buying rather than replacing it. Crypto markets are just one alternative. Many of the people who are actually using crypto markets are not heroin and cocaine addicts, if that makes sense, just because usually it has to be planned because you have to order it online and then it has to come here. So for them, if they are addicted to heroin or cocaine, they won't have the luxury to wait for the drugs to come in. So they are mainly recreational drugs on crypto markets and not the typical like hard drugs. But what crypto markets do is alter the supply chain, and this could have a huge impact on the way we conceive of drug purchasing as a crime. Here's James again. 
I think what we're seeing is a real gentrification of the illicit drug market. Um, and that's because this is a real buyer's market. So usually, you know, if you're living in an area, you want to buy some illicit drugs, there might be, you know, a handful of dealers located around you. The power is really with the dealer there. Yeah, you've got a situation where the buyer and the seller are not really, don't necessarily have a fantastic relationship. Whereas online, you see, well, you can see here, you know, there's a really different tone. James says the gentrification of drug crime presents a strong case for legalisation. What these sites do is they really undercut a lot of the rationale for drug criminalisation. They show that drugs and violence don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. These sites represent a real threat to organisations like the DEA, where they really rely on these crazy cartels that are going out and beheading people, terrifying the public. Whereas here, what the drug dealers have managed to do is decouple the violence from the illicit drug trade. And I think because of that, they can show people that it isn't necessarily as bad as the governments have been making out. We could be facing a future of drug buying, where it's not a crime at all, at least for non-synthetic recreational drugs like marijuana. But Morgan says a line should be drawn, and it all depends on the potency of the drug. The whole point of what I do at UTS developing these presumptive tests is to be able to identify these compounds. I could not see you legalising all of these new psychoactive substances. They're very dangerous substances and high potential of overdose for a lot of the synthetic opioids. I just really can't see that you would want to legalise these really dangerous chemicals. Science and technology are shifting the goalposts, not only impacting the type of drugs available, but how we buy them, how we identify them, and how we fight them. The entire field of forensic science is evolving to meet the challenges of new synthetic substances, and staying innovative is the key to keeping on top of the ever-changing drug landscape. It is pretty important to note that buying illicit drugs on the internet is currently just as illegal as it is buying them in person. But the anonymity of crypto markets is challenging the way we think about the connection between drugs and crime. Whatever happens, Marie is certain that researchers like herself are not fighting a losing battle. Like we still have to understand because it will still be a health issue. You legalize alcohol, you legalize cigarettes and it's still an issue. There's still health problem related to it. So I think with the drugs, it would be the same. Like, I mean, there's still addiction that is related, even if it's legalized. The approach, I don't think it would be very different because there's still going to be ways for criminals to change what they are trading. So it might not be drugs, but it could be because even counterfeit medicine is something that is done as well. So that means even if it's legal, there's still counterfeits that are on the market and they still sell that. So I think with drugs, even if it becomes legal, there's still either going to be some illegal drugs that are still there and the problem on the society is still going to be there. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Shane Anderson. Bye for now.